Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Greetings, everyone. I'm Vicki Basplega, Director of the Clinical Specialist and Scientist section here at ASHP, and thanks for joining. I'm excited to share with you that today's episode is a curated feature from the exceptional programming from the 2021 ASHP Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. Please enjoy the voices of your colleagues as they share the latest clinical information, best practices, and leadership advice at the world's largest gathering of pharmacists. Today we have a 36-year-old patient who has opioid use disorder and is taking buprenorphine naloxone 8 milligrams twice daily for medication for opioid use disorder. And this patient's coming in for a planned surgical procedure. Patients with this surgical procedure typically require opioids for three to four days postoperatively to better manage their pain. Now, this patient is being started on the standard of care enhanced recovery pathways, and the team is now asking you how we should manage their buprenorphine for their medication for opioid use disorder. What treatment pathway are you going to recommend? Let's talk about now why this is really such an issue. Buprenorphine, as an agent for medication for opioid use disorder, has become the most widely utilized of the three options, likely because it's a Schedule three substance and it's easier to prescribe in the community. In addition to this, it has very complex pharmacology, and because of those two things, we are seeing it more frequently in the community being utilized for MOUD therapy, which is great. However, when we enter the patient who has acute pain management needs, who has an opioid tolerance, whether that's from chronic opioid use or from MOUD, this really presents a problem that is somewhat mind-blowing. Essentially, this is not a black and white issue, but this issue is really gray, and we're living in the paradox here. So our hope is that we'll be able to talk through some pharmacology and some tools to give you a better idea and feel more confident in managing these patients. Let's start by understanding really the intersection of opioid use disorder and acute pain to get a better understanding of why this is such a complex issue. So I like to think of this as kind of peeling back layers of the onion. So first we have tolerance. So our patients who are on MOUD for opioid use disorder clearly have a significant opioid tolerance. Now this makes it a bit more difficult to use opioids for analgesia because we know that their efficacy isn't going to necessarily be the same of that as a patient who does not have an opioid tolerance and we may need higher doses to achieve any analgesic benefit. Then when we add in the concept of hyperalgesia, which is an increased sensitivity to pain and a decrease in pain tolerance, we know that patients with opioid use disorder experience more significant pain than the general population with normal nociceptive stimuli. In addition to this, there's also a concept called opioid-induced hyperalgesia in which opioid use in and of itself can actually worsen the hyperalgesia, worsen the pain state. So as you increase the doses of opioids, their pain increases subsequently as well. Next, we have neuroplasticity. Essentially, this means that there are neurochemical changes taking place within the patient's brain that are chronic in nature. So even after cessation of use or with chronic continued use, these these issues with having an increased experience of pain will continue for basically the duration of their life. Next, we have the dysregulation of the stress response. 
This is a physiologic change that happens in patients who are taking chronic opioids. Physical and psychological stressors can trigger drug, drug craving for these patients and subsequent recurrence of disease. Now, stress from unrelieved pain is more likely to trigger a relapse than providing adequate analgesia is for these patients. And lastly, when we throw in the issue of concomitant chronic pain, in which about two-thirds of patients who present with OUD have chronic pain at baseline, and we know that it's more difficult in general to treat acute pain on chronic pain, this really becomes a very complex issue. And you can see how these issues layer on top of one another and why this is such a difficult thing uh, to treat. So I like to look at this issue really as trying to balance two main issues here. So really we're looking at both opioid use disorder and acute pain management. Now we have risks that we're thinking about. So if we under treat acute pain, some of the things that commonly can happen in the acute care setting are that the patient will leave against medical advice. Additionally, this has been associated with using illicit drugs in the hospital and subsequent OUD recurrence. Now, similarly, if we undertreat the opioid use disorder, at this point, we worry about opioid withdrawal being an issue, which would therefore worsen the acute pain and is medical destabilizing. And this also puts them at risk of having a recurrence in their OUD. And in both settings with that recurrence risk, what we really worry about is that the patient is going to have an accidental opioid overdose. So the take home point here is that if we're under treating our patients on either side of this equation, we can really set them up for failure and they can essentially die of their opioid use disorder far sooner than they would from any other primary disease state. So this is a very important issue to be discussing today. Now I wanna take a brief moment to talk to you about stigma and bias in healthcare, because this is something that you can do starting today to change the way that you approach these patients and make a positive difference in their care. Stigma and bias in terms of patients with opioid use disorder and those with chronic pain is associated with known disparities in healthcare treatment. In fact, the top two reasons that patients with infective endocarditis related to injection drug use leave against medical advice are due to undertreatment of withdrawal or pain or discriminatory behaviors by the healthcare team. Now, while behaviors driven by stigma and bias take time and effort to address, a tangible step that you can take now is to change the language that, the, that you use on a daily basis and encourage your institutions to change the narrative as well. Your words matter, and several studies have shown that the words and phrases listed here are associated with negative bias, while the suggested language corresponds more positively. As an example of how powerful words can be in healthcare, in a study evaluating perceptions of mental health care clinicians of bias regarding social threat, culpability, and whether punitive versus therapeutic measures should be taken, an identical vignette with embedded verbiage of either substance abuser or person with a substance use disorder found that those whose vignette described the person as a substance abuser agreed more with the notion that the patient was personally culpable and that punitive measures should be taken. So now that we've talked about some background, let's discuss some common misconceptions and then we're going to go through some pharmacology to kind of help us address why these things are misconceptions and to give you a better understanding and a better footing of where to start from on your journey. So some of the things that I hear frequently is that 
Well, the patient's taking this massive dose of opioid, and oftentimes, you know, we have these, these calculators that are in our EHR and are integrated now, and we see that large number. And so providers often think, this patient surely shouldn't need any opioids to treat their pain because they have a ton on board, and I, I don't feel comfortable giving this to them. Another thing that happens is that people may think that the use of opioids for analgesia might result in addiction recurrence for these patients. Or people may believe that full agonist opioids used on top of buprenorphine won't provide adequate analgesia. Next, that reporting pain, so let's say you have a patient who's calling out for pain medication every hour because they're miserable. Oftentimes this is seen by the team instead of as under treatment, as a manipulation to obtain opioids, as drug-seeking behavior, or a manifestation of worsening addiction. And in these cases, oftentimes I see these teams saying, I'm not going to give the patient anything more because it's enabling their disease. And lastly, I also have folks tell me that they believe that the naloxone component in Suboxone or sublingual buprenorphine naloxone blunts the effects of opioids for analgesia and therefore, it's not going to help to give them IR opioids, so they're just not going to do it anyway. So let's start to kind of demystify some of these misconceptions, just starting with the basic pharmacology. On the right here, we have a graph showing the different agonist properties of some common medications. We have opioid effect on the left with the log dose on the bottom. Now, you'll notice here that naloxone is our competitive antagonist. And then we have the full agonist on top with methadone, and that's more of a linear response curve. Now, this could be any full agonist opioid, such as oxycodone or morphine in addition. Then we have buprenorphine, which is somewhat of a linear response to a point, but then it somewhat plateaus off kind of in the middle here, and that's why we call it a partial agonist. So a few things to note. In terms of naloxone absorption, while it is an antagonist at the mu opioid receptor, the component, when it was developed for use in the sublingual suboxone product, is actually not appreciably absorbed when it is truly given sublingually for MOUD. So it isn't going to impact in any way analgesia or the treatment of their MOUD. The thought process for including it was that if a patient were to misuse that medication and let's say inject it, that it would somewhat blunt the high to deter this use. Now, that's somewhat debatable, uh, depending on the, the, the literature that you read, but that's a bit outside the scope of this presentation. So if what I want you to take away is that the naloxone component in that medication does not blunt the effects of analgesia when used appropriately. The next thing that's important to talk about in terms of buprenorphine's partial agonism is that it does have a higher binding affinity for the mu opioid receptor. And oftentimes when we think about uh, the use of buprenorphine in these patients, we worry a lot about precipitated withdrawal. So while it does bind up to 20 times more higher of an affinity than other opioids, really this issue of precipitated withdrawal is only a, an issue if you have a patient coming in who is continuing to use phalagonist opioids. So let's say they're not currently on MOUD, they've recently used heroin and illicit fentanyl before coming in, and then we start that buprenorphine before that they have enough of that drug out of their system, and they're kind of pulled from that higher point down to the lower point, and that's what causes that precipitated withdrawal. 
However, this is not an issue if the patient is actually continuing their therapy. So if they're, they've been initiated on it and they've been taking it as prescribed, and let's say you've checked a urine drug screen, you've confirmed verbally, or you've checked the PDMP that they have indeed been taking it and they're on it, if we add these IR opioids on top, it's not going to cause precipitated withdrawal. And in fact, those IR opioids are going to be a benefit to us with the available mu opioid receptors that are there, which is what we're going to be discussing next. On this slide, I have two different graphs kind of highlighting mu receptor occupation versus availability based on buprenorphine dose. So the left, we have percent occupied mu opioid receptors, and the right graph shows availability versus the buprenorphine dose. The things that I want you to keep in mind with this is that this is not a linear dose response curve, right? So with varying doses, the amount of receptor occupation can vary widely. To give you an example of this, a buprenorphine 4 milligram sublingual dose occupies or excuse me, has about 36 to 44% receptors available at any given time. That number decreases to 20 to 35% at 8 milligrams and further decreases to 9 to 20% at a 16 milligram dose. However, as I mentioned, there is good data to support that when we use those IR opioids that are full agonists, that we can actually indeed cause analgesia by agonizing those available mu opioid receptors. And additionally, those medications aren't going to bump off that buprenorphine because of its higher affinity. The next thing that's important to discuss from a pharmacology standpoint is buprenorphine's potency. It is indeed a very potent opioid, with about 16 milligrams of sublingual buprenorphine being approximately equivalent to 480 morphine-equivalent daily dosage units, and this is a very big amount for a patient, especially when we're considering how to treat them and if we're going to be continuing their buprenorphine or not. So we'll kind of discuss the clinical implications of that shortly. The next thing is that as a sublingual product, its elimination half-life is extremely long in patients. So just at baseline, the effect of the mu receptor is 24 to 60 hours, depending on the patient. However, based on its complex pharmacology, the analgesic effect of this medication is really only about 6 to 12 hours for any given patient. Now, while we don't want to equate the MOUD as an analgesic medication, it's not a bad idea to optimize the pharmacology to provide any form of analgesic benefit that we can by maybe augmenting their dosing interval while they're under our care just for the treatment of acute pain management. I now like to talk through some scenarios. So when we think about stopping buprenorphine, oftentimes the thought process behind this is that we are going to improve the opioid analgesia associated with this. An important note here is that other medications and modalities can and absolutely should be used to treat acute pain in an opioid tolerant patient, a patient who's on MOUD just as we would in any other patient care population. Now, I mentioned the potency of buprenorphine, so if we stop buprenorphine, we have a large gap that we have to cover here, so almost 500 OMEs or oromorphine equivalents. So at this point, we're concerned for withdrawal on the one hand, but also knowing that analgesia is really not possible until their baseline requirements are met. So now let's think through some of the advantages of continuing buprenorphine. 
So the most obvious is that we don't have to cover this large MEDD deficit that we just discussed. In addition to that, we know that there is good evidence to support the use of buprenorphine and immediate-release opioids to achieve analgesia in these patients. We also avoid risk in the discontinuity in care. What I mean by this is think about the healthcare system and what we would all like it to be in the ideal state versus what it is in reality. So if you have a patient like the one that we discussed at the beginning of our case who's coming in for a planned surgical procedure and the team did want to stop their buprenorphine, you would have to work with the addiction medicine provider. You would have to taper them down. They would have to be managed appropriately for their OUD and monitored very closely because their OUD is not being treated when they're off of their medication. And then when they have the surgery, we're going to have to cover that large spread we're going to have to optimize our multimodal toolkit. And then when it's time for them to be discharged or leave the hospital, then we have to worry about reinducing them, which oftentimes means that these patients have to be undergoing withdrawal from opioids, which is medically destabilizing, especially when they're used to being on higher doses for the treatment of their MOUD and they're in acute pain management. So this is not really a great situation just based on the healthcare system, because all of those things oftentimes don't work well together. We kind of touched on avoiding these reinduction complexities, but the other piece to note is that even if the system did work well, we do have a shortage of providers who are able to prescribe buprenorphine for MOUD, and so oftentimes this can put a strain on the healthcare system where there's already a large strain. And lastly, if we continue their buprenorphine, we're essentially continuing their OUD treatment, which is going to decrease the risk of their OUD relapse and therefore accidental overdose. So now let's look at this from perspective in terms of both our analgesic and our OUD treatment balancing act here. So if we stop the buprenorphine, our baseline MEDD requirements that we have to cover is a fairly large number. So we're worried about withdrawal, which can contribute to the pain, and we know that we can't achieve analgesia until those baseline requirements are met. And we know that large doses are likely required, and oftentimes our healthcare systems are very uncomfortable with prescribing the doses that would be necessary to effectively treat these patients. From an OUD treatment perspective and the risk of relapse, we have now taken away their maintenance medication for opioid use disorder. And there is a difference between the efficacy for craving versus withdrawal prevention. And we know that if you're then reintroducing a full agonist opioid for these patients and you're not doing it to a dose that's effective for them, then they probably are going to be more likely to have that craving because they're essentially trying to self-treat two diseases, right? Their OUD and their acute pain. Additionally, we'd have that reinduction complexity and that risk of discontinuity in care. Now, if we continue the buprenorphine from the analgesic perspective, we do have that limited mu receptor availability depending on the dose that's provided. However, we know that we can use IR opioids on top, and we still have all of these other modalities in our toolkit that we should be using for enhanced recovery pathways and otherwise. We don't have to cover that large MEDD deficit, so whatever we give to the patient can immediately begin to go towards that analgesic benefit. Now, from an OUD treatment perspective, their risk of relapse is likely less in that their baseline treatment is maintained. 
However, I do want to note that there would be a potential for an increased risk of the patient having disease recurrence if their severe refractory pain cannot be managed. If this is at all looking like the case, it is very important to engage with your pain management or palliative care teams early and often. And lastly, reinduction would not be necessary for these patients. Thanks so much for listening in today. Be sure to follow us at ASHB Official wherever you listen to your podcasts and check back soon to hear more featurettes from the 2021 ASHB Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. Until then, this is Vicki Basiliga from ASHB Official and thank you for all you do for your patients. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.